Good morning. Um, Dad asked me to read a verse to kind of open up the sermon. Uh, so if y'all would turn with me to Luke 18. Luke chapter 18. And that's starting at verse 9. That says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to pray at the temple, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. This, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance he would not even look up to the heavens, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Thank you, Peyton. Um, First of all, real quick, I apologize. The uh, face mic is not working this morning, so if you typically rely on that, or if I take a field trip from the pulpit and start walking amongst you this morning and you can't hear me that well, uh, I'm sorry. Um, I was really looking forward to wearing the face mic and fidgeting with it. I'm sure everybody's thinking, man, how in the world was Peyton such a smooth operator up here as he spoke and he told me a couple of days ago as he was giving me some advice (laughs) on speaking and he said, you know, Dad, what I found through my years of experience in public speaking is uh, I just keep in mind that I talk to these people all the time. So uh, so that is true, very true. Um, we've got a packed schedule this morning, and uh, my goal will be to get this done quickly, uh, because we do have several things to get to this morning, as you can see in your bulletin. Um, so a few months back, uh, three, four, whatever it was, um, for whatever reason, I started uh, having this question in my mind of something like this. Did Jesus teach the same salvation message as Paul? Now, that's a developed question, but the original question was, uh, how, did, how did, did Jesus ever really teach and preach? Jesus died on the cross for my sins, which is kind of like the Sunday school response, right? Uh, when, when asked, you know, how are you saved? Uh, and so on its face, you think, uh, no, I don't actually recall Jesus ever speaking that out in some way. Did, you know, did he actually say, Jesus died on the cross for my sins and I'm therefore forgiven? Uh, no, he didn't. So what came about was this more formed question of, well, Paul the Apostle Paul um, in the New Testament 
you know, laid out the salvation message multiple times, and I thought, well, did Jesus teach the same salvation message as Paul? Of course, my going into it assumption was, well, of course he did, but I wanted to look into that. The reason I wanted to was just because I think it is uh, of the utmost importance that we know that Jesus did preach the salvation message and not only just know it, but actually go, yeah, because it's found here, here, and, and here, and here, and here throughout the, the Gospels. So as I looked into the question, um, I was brought to, to this verse that Peyton just read for us. And honestly, when I read the verse, you know, it's, it's a verse that we've all read a thousand times, these verses, um, this parable. But uh, as I dug more into it, uh, I went from being kind of confused by it to um, grateful, extremely grateful for it. It's always been one of those verses that I kind of passed by because I didn't quite really get the full implication of it. So as you can see in your bulletin, um, we've got... Four points. Uh, I'll say this, that two of them are a little longer. Two of them are extremely quick. So don't freak out that there's four points. Um, but even the, the two short ones are important. So I wanted to start off with, you know, if, if the question is, did Jesus teach the same salvation message as Paul? Then I think we need to clarify and look at what exactly was the salvation message that Paul preached, that he taught as he moved from village to village. So Paul preached salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I'm pretty confident that those that the way that's spoken uh, is at least somewhat familiar to everybody. Christ alone, faith alone, faith alone, all that. Uh, and that's good if it is. And those, those alone terms, those are three of what's called, referred to as the solas, or solas uh, of the Protestant Reformation. Reformation. Um, I think a, a good bunch of us are probably at least vaguely familiar with what I'm talking about there, but if not, uh, quickly, uh, back in the early 1500s, there was a growing number of folks within the Catholic Church, which was the the church at the time, uh, who began to uh, see that there were some issues with what the the church, the Catholic Church, was teaching and preaching and pushing out, um, especially in terms of how we're saved, our relationship to Scripture, and our relationship with God. And so uh, this Reformation was mostly led by a fellow named Martin Luther. And this group, they wanted... uh, there to be reform within the church. That's what they want. They didn't want a split. They didn't want bad things to happen. They wanted there to be some major changes uh, with, within the doctrine of the Catholic Church. And so that's what they were after. And 
1517, it really caught fire when Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the Wittenberg Church. And uh, to say the least, the Catholic Church uh, did not reform. They got ticked. And there was no reformation within the Catholic Church, but there was exile. And uh, there was a major split, and here we are today uh, with the Christian Church over here and all its different denominations in the Catholic Church. Um, There are major differences, and these five solas are kind of the nutshell or the major uh, doctrinal differences that the Reformers were um, bringing up as as the major issues. And those are, I think I say this every time, we need a a bigger pulpit up here. First, Scripture alone. Scripture alone is the sole authority for all matters of faith and practice. Scripture alone is, is the sole authority. And it's not Scripture, and this is how the Catholic Church would have put it, Scripture and the Pope. And the church councils, those are the authorities on faith and practice. And so the first sola is, no, no, it's just scripture. That's the only place we get this stuff from. Second is salvation is uh, grace alone. Not by our works that we have earned our salvation by. It is just by the grace of God. And then third, salvation is by faith alone, faith alone in Christ. Not faith in our works, but faith in Christ's righteousness that was imputed onto us, not our righteousness. And then in Christ alone, his substitutionary work on the cross in our place is our salvation from the wrath of God. Jesus bore our sins and then gave us his righteousness. Martin Luther, and I think this is a really, really cool uh, term here, the way he puts this. Martin Luther called this, this where, where we give Jesus our sins, and then this is a sweet deal for us, right? And then he gives us his righteousness. Martin Luther called it the great exchange, and I think rightfully so. So in Christ alone, we are redeemed and reconciled by Jesus' death on the cross. Nothing else. This is stated in Isaiah 53, 11, and I was happy to hear some Isaiah being thrown around. But it says this, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. And then finally, for the glory of God alone. Salvation is of God alone and for his glory alone. We are called as Christians to live life under his authority and to his glory. So, obviously, we're not going to dig into all of these solas today, but we are looking at three of them. Um, And these three key doctrines are what Paul preached And taught as his salvation message, as the salvation message. So if you will, 
turn with me because I want to make sure that this is found in Scripture, right? Because uh, if it's not found in Scripture, then it's, we're making it up and we're just like the Catholic Church and we're depending on man and our councils to come up with this stuff. So let's look at Ephesians uh, 2, chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 3. And I'm, I'm sharing, you know, we're looking at Paul's message of salvation, and we're looking only at Ephesians, but uh, th- there are numerous places in the New Testament where Paul walks this out. So it is not only found in Ephesians 2. So I'll go ahead and start uh, chapter 2, verse 3. All of us... Also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And here's the kicker. So get out your highlighter. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not yourselves, from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I've said this, we're going to jump down to verse 11 in a second, but I've said this a thousand times. If it is on us that we are saved, if we're the ones who are responsible, even for the decision to come to Christ, then that means that there are the saved and the unsaved. And by golly, the saved can kind of boast and go, aren't we just a tad smarter? Right? Even if it's just a little bit, we can boast. But it's not of us. Not even... The decision is of us. Verse 11, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcised, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus You who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jump over to chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. According to his, his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. So I think these verses again, are some of many verses in the New Testament and in the Old Testament that point to our salvation being faith alone in Christ alone by grace alone. Not in that exact order, but there you go. So that was in, in quick broken down, that is exactly what Paul's salvation message was. And again, the question is, is that what Jesus taught? 
And again, I know that our Christian minds are going, yes, of course it is. But also, again, want us to make sure that we see it in Scripture. But first, uh, you know, we heard when Peyton read our uh, text this morning that uh, this was a parable that Jesus uh, taught with. So we want to look at what is a parable. And Jesus used these things a whole lot. Uh, so we want to make sure that we have a at least a basic understanding of what those are. And so para uh, is defined as something that is by the side of or alongside or a subsidiary of. And so what comes to my mind all the time uh, when I'm thinking of this is uh, paramilitary. And so when I first got on with the state police, one of the first things they started drilling in our minds is we are paramilitary. And of course, I, being a brand new 21-year-old who was not very well educated, thought, well, what does that mean? You can tell me that, but you still got to tell me what that means. So paramilitary, as far as the state police goes, is we're not military, but we do a lot of the same things. We're kind of like them. Um, We emulate some of their practices by the way that we do our job. And so, again, it's something that goes alongside of something else. And so Jesus would use these parables many times to either follow a a short teaching that he had just given out. So he would give the teaching or just a few little uh, statements and then he would follow it with a parable. Or he would use the parable in itself to do the teaching. So his parable would go alongside or accompany his teaching. Uh, Parables are not allegories and a lot of time people will uh, kind of look at parables and try and dig into them, and they start finding things that aren't meant to be found. They're not actually in that, in the sense that uh, parables, not every little thing in a parable has symbolization or meaning, um, whereas allegories pretty much do. There's typically with the parables that Jesus taught, there's an overarching theme or or, uh, teaching that he's trying to get out, Um, And then maybe one or two things within it has symbolization. So they're not allegories. And again, sometimes we can read these things and go, oh, man, he must have been referring to this as a a pizza box. And so surely this is what we can get out of this. So that don't don't read too deep into it um, in those ways. Um, Parables, uh, Jesus meant for them to be. Uh, clarifying, sometimes eventually clarifying. So maybe at first, and we saw a lot of the um, apostles hear a parable and then scratch their head and go, I need more clarification than that, Jesus. So I I, I put in parentheses here, meant to be clarifying, sometimes eventually. We have the benefit of a couple thousand years where these parables have been broken down and looked at by super smart people And so we kind of get them a little bit quicker than uh, others, but they are meant to clarify the teachings of Jesus. Um, But at the same time, we also see that there's non-believers, like the Pharisees, who hear parables and walk away going, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. What is he even talking about? So they're meant to be clarifying to believers, people who have been given ears to hear, 
uh, but to some it confuses them more. But we've heard verses in, the, in, in Scripture where it says, hey man, the, the salvation message, the word of God to those who don't believe sounds foolish. Uh, one scholar said that Jesus' parables are meant to have believers look deeper into the teaching and they're used to probe farther into our hearts. So we've looked at what is a parable. We've looked at what's the purpose of the parable. And so as we now move into our text and really start looking at the salvation message that was taught and preached by Jesus himself. Um, he uses a parable. And so uh, I want to stop right here for a 30-second prayer. I'm bad with time management, so it might go to 60 seconds. Um, but I want us to pray that God would use this parable to probe farther into our hearts. So let's really quick prayer. Um, Lord, uh, there's no doubt that this parable, this teaching, at least to me, and surely there's a few folks that are like me in the sense that this, on the surface, is a kind of confusing parable. Um, and Lord, there's no doubt that it's, it's a good possibility, Lord, that there's going to be a few folks maybe here this morning that hear this teaching that you have given and it kind of uh, rubs them the wrong way for a minute. And so, Lord, we pray that as we now dig into this teaching that you have uh, given to us as a gift, Lord, that you would use it to probe deeper into our hearts, give us a greater understanding of your salvation message lord we need to know this very important uh, topic here lord how is one saved so lord we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and our ears now lord supernaturally lord wake us up to hear from you in jesus name we pray amen 30 seconds exactly so i believe that we will hear the salvation message by Jesus Christ, taught by him himself. It's red letters in my Bible. I think we're going to hear this straight from him as we look into this parable. So I want to set the stage, so to speak, for this. And uh, I want us to kind of start to picture exactly what was going on at this time uh, here in this text. And to do that, we kind of have to refer back to the um, chapter before. And so we see at this point that Jesus and his disciples, they are traveling down to Jerusalem, and they're somewhere between Samaria and Galilee. And they're in a small village. It doesn't say specifically which one, but it's close to Jericho. Okay. So that's where they're at. And of course, Jesus as he does many, many, many times uh, before he finds himself in the situation where he is surrounded, probably uh, like in a meeting, gathering place within the village. He's surrounded by 
a host of people, his disciples. We know they were there. We know that there were Pharisees present and then a bunch of village people. Not the village people, but the village. People from the village. If the village people were there, they didn't hear the message. Poor choice of words. So Jesus at this time, he's doing what he does best, which is teaching and healing. We see all that from the, the, the chapter before and then the following chapter. So Jesus had just spoken to these people and uh, he had talked to them about the kingdom of God that was, that was coming. And then he had also given another parable prior to this one on the persistent widow. And in this parable, uh, you have this widow who's been cheated or wronged some way, it doesn't say how, uh, by some oppressors or some people, her adversaries. And she's going to this judge who uh, it describes as an unjust judge, somebody who does not care really about the people. He doesn't care about what they think, um, he, but he probably enjoys the power of being a judge. And this persistent widow keeps coming to him, uh, asking for some type of justice. In her situation, she wants some type of relief. And so at some point, the judge says, you know what? I'm really tired of her coming before me, so she's super nagging. Uh, I think the only way I can get rid of her nagging rear end is if I give her some sort of relief. So he does. He gives her some type of justice. doesn't say what. I think it's important that we look at that because it goes straight from this parable and Jesus puts a bow on it, but it goes straight from that. And I can almost picture Jesus doing it. It says in verse 9, it says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So Jesus goes, he's, he's talking to these folks. He tells this parable and then I can almost picture him looking up at the crowd and seeing folks in the crowd snickering, uh, talking about probably the dumb teaching that Jesus had just given, probably going by this, saying things like, well, if the dumb woman would have done this, then all this would have been taken care of, or maybe talking about how weak she was or how dependent she was on other people and how they didn't need to depend on the judge if they were in that type of situation because they have ways around the justice system. They can handle it themselves. They're snickering and they're belittling this person. And I think Jesus sees that when he looks up at the crowd. Of course, he's Jesus, so he kind of also knows what's in their hearts. And I think that because... Kind of says it never says that he changes scenes or groups of folks that he's talking about. It just says to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. That just tells me that's exactly what they were doing. And he told this parable. 
Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, I'm assuming that some of these people who were snickering were Pharisees. So one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So Jesus has two characters in this parable, one a tax collector and the other one a Pharisee. I think it's important for us to get, in order to get the full grasp of this teaching and parable, that we need to look at both characters. So tax collectors, we've heard some of these things before, but tax collectors in those days were looked at as dirtbags, putting it mildly. They were looked at as dirtbags. Why were they looked at as dirtbags? Because they, they did dirtbag things. It's not because people were being judgmental. They did dirtbag things. And even, even Jesus recognized their reputation. And Paul brought it up last week in his sermon. And I wanted to point this out. Our pastor Paul was preaching last week on church discipline. And so here we get Matthew 18. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. Um, he's talking about, at this point, the, an unrepentant believer within the church. It says in verse 17, If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So even Jesus recognized that these people were looked at as dirtbags. He put them in the same category as a pagan. So tax collectors, this is some of the dirtbag stuff they did. Tax collectors, they were traitors. They were actually... Jewish citizens, but they voluntarily sold themselves into the service of Rome, uh, into the Roman government, uh, at the expense of the other Jewish citizens. They would, uh, they had the, they were lawfully there to take up taxes to collect taxes for Rome, uh, but then they were lawfully allowed to ta- to tack on an additional tax or a shipping and handling fee. So if the tax rate, and these are probably very low, but if the tax rate was 25% for Rome, they would add on maybe another 10% on top of that. And they could get away with it. So when I think of, of that definition or that, that way of looking at a tax collector, I think of kind of two, two things more in the modern era. Um, I wish Barb was here. Because this was meant for Barb. Get, let me finish. It was, kind of, it was a joke. But, you know, we, we think, or I think of mobsters and gangsters from the big cities back in the 1920s and 30s, like Al Capone from Chicago. And the joke would have been, I'm sure Barb knew him or, knew him or something like that. She's not here, so... Not as funny. 
But these guys, they would uh, actually charge a fee to the local businesses. These businesses were already paying their federal, state, and local taxes. But they would charge a fee for the right to have a business in their area. And then then get this. They would also charge them a fee for protection from criminals and people who would take advantage of them. Kind of like they were doing. Or even a more modern-day... Example, the, the payday loan uh, sharks out there. We see them everywhere, and if you haven't seen them, look beside the vape shops, and you'll find them. <laughs> so these guys, 100%, they prey on the weak, the desperate, probably a little ignorant individuals by giving them very short-term loans that have huge interest rates some as, as much as 100%. So these folks are desperate, they're weak, and they don't know what they're getting themselves into, and they just take full advantage of them. It's kind of what I think of when I think of a tax collector. And all this, this is why people hated them so much and had such a low view of them because they were doing all this at the tip of Roman spear. So Pharisees, on the other hand, were known to be very devout morally and religiously. And they were the standard bearers. They set the bar on what it looked like to be moral and religious. And they were treated, as opposed to the tax collector, they were treated with honor and respect everywhere they went. And they even yielded power and favor from the Roman, Roman government. And to back that up, to, to show that that's kind of true as, as we read in our text what, how the Pharisee uh, referred to himself, like Jesus at no point in this text does he go, oh, but the Pharisee was all wrong. He was, in fact, an evildoer. He did do this, this, and this. Jesus never corrects that. Jesus let that go because the Pharisee was devout morally and religiously. Like he really, really was. So first, as again we look at our text, uh, specifically at the Pharisee, we gather that he is standing near as opposed to far off, near to the center of the temple, kind of where the Holy of Holies You don't want to get close to that place. He's not a robber. He's not an evildoer. He's not an adulterer or anything like the trash bag tax collector. And he's not. He's not a cheat. He's not an unfaithful traitor. So morally, he is, he actually is straight as an arrow. The text is not ever going to say that he's not morally good. And how about religiously? He fasts not once but twice a week. I don't know that any of us can. Well, maybe you can. If you can, you don't talk about it, and that's good. But he, he fasts not once but twice a week. He gives the full 10% when he tithes. And both of these, are they, they were instructions by the law that he had. He was doing exactly what he was told to do. And he did it. 
And obviously he's faithful in his prayer life. He's there to pray. And he gets his rear end to the temple as he's told to do. All this is required by law and he did it. Nothing wrong with that. Furthermore, we see that as he starts his prayer, let's look at this. Prayed, God, I thank you. And this is verse 11. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. And then he goes on into the list. So the Pharisee, not only is he good at all this other stuff, but he, he even is acknowledging the fact that his goodness, his awesomeness, comes from God. Like he's saying, hey, God, thank you that I'm super great morally and I'm super great religiously. This is a gift from you. Like he's acknowledging that in his prayer. So what's, what's, the, what's the problem here? We see down at the bottom, verse 14, it tells us that when these two guys left, that the tax collector was justified before God and not the Pharisee. So what's, what's the deal? He was all of these things. God never says, or Jesus never says that he wasn't great morally or religiously. But when he left, he was not saved. He was not right before God. So why not? So, of course, when I start digging into this thing for the first few times, my question really is, is, is there something wrong with being morally upright? Is there something wrong with living a, a life that is glorifying to God? Is there something wrong with that? I think the only way that we can really get an answer to that really complexing question is to look at the tax collector. We have to finish the text, right? We have to look at all of it. But it is... Mind-blowing to think that here is this guy who does all this stuff in God and that Jesus never contradicts it or says that he was wrong, but he left there not justified. What's wrong with what he was doing? So let's look at the tax collector. The tax collector, uh, first of all, we see it described that he... uh, he stood far off, and this is in contrast to where the Pharisee was standing. The Pharisee uh, probably was one of the first folks in the door that morning, and he went straight to the front, kind of where Corky said. Just using it as an example. Not of his heart, just his location. So he stands far off, and this tells us that he, he didn't feel very comfortable 
being close to the Holy of Holies. He was uncomfortable being there. You know, we've all heard people say, oh man, if I walk into, if, if Johnny walks into church, he's going to get struck by lightning. Well, that's probably how, if you haven't heard that, you have not hung out with enough rednecks. <laughs> so get out. Not like leave, but like get out more and hang out with more rednecks. Um, but this dude clearly had in the back of his mind, I'm going to walk in here, but I may get struck by lightning. Like I have no business being here. And so he stood far off, probably just inside the doorway. And rightfully so. Remember, he's a, he is a dirtbag. He does dirtbag things. He's right to be worried. Like, if I walked in there beside him, kind of like the Pharisee, uh, I probably would not have stood next to him because when his body dropped, I didn't want it to fall on me. I I really don't like to touch dead people. Plus, it would have made them unclean back then, but even then, I still just don't want to do that. So, he was right to be a little worried. And to take it a little farther... It says that he wouldn't even look up to heaven. So he's worried that he's there. He's scared that at any point he's going to die. And then he won't even... Much, he, he, it's not that he won't look at God. He won't even look in the direction of where God is. But then it says that he... Beat his breast as he prayed. There's probably only been a couple of times in my life where I prayed. I was probably alone. Where I did something like beat my breast. And when you get to that point, there's no doubt that you are praying a fervent prayer. Something that you mean and feel down in your guts. And that's how Jesus describes this guy. And this is all he prays. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. I don't know if he immediately left. Uh, of course, this is a parable, so... Doesn't mean that he had to do either thing, but I don't know if he immediately left then or if he just hung out there in silence. But that's all that Jesus said that he prayed was, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So what do we have here in the tax collector? We have a man here who has been given the eyes to see the depravity of his sinful heart. That everybody else already sees. He has seen. Supernaturally. That he is a dirtbag. That does dirtbag things. Something everybody else already saw. And that he is guilty. Of the description that we looked at earlier. He's been made aware. Of his standing before God. And he clearly knows that he is in the presence of a holy, perfect, and pure God. And that he's not even worthy to be in the room 
He's not even worthy to look in the direction of God. But we also have a man who is obviously so desperate that he would take the chance to step inside of the temple door to plead for mercy. And keep in mind, this Jew has heard the tales from the Old Testament of folks who stood in the presence in the Holy of Holies or even just got near it and dropped dead. Like he's heard of that before, so he knows it's a possibility. But he's desperate. He's seeking mercy. He's seeking forgiveness of his sins. And he knows that the only way he can get those things is if he would have it by grace. And I'm, we know that, the, that, that he knows that it's only by grace that he'll get this mercy and forgiveness of his sins. Because it never mentions in this text that at the end of his prayer, he mentions any good deed that he had ever done. Nothing. It never mentions, have mercy on me, a sinner. By the way, I have the lowest additional tax rate of any tax collector in the land. I only charge 9%. Everybody else is 15 He does not mention any merit that would give him the right to forgiveness, to mercy. He doesn't mention anything. As we heard in this song this morning, it was incredible to hear it. That we come empty-handed. He was empty-handed, so to speak. He didn't have anything. And that's the kicker. That's the difference. We look at other contrasting individuals that Jesus spoke of, the rich young ruler. He walked away from Jesus not because he was rich. Many a rich folk that were rich on earth will be in heaven. Okay, so it's not that he was rich. If we look at the way it's described in Scripture, the reason the rich young ruler walked away is because he wanted to hang on to what was in his hands, all that cash money, his success that had earned him that money. He wanted to bring that with him before God as his merit. That's what He wanted to bring that with him. He was not coming before Jesus Empty-handed. And Jesus simply said, man, just let, get rid of all that so that you can be empty-handed. We looked at it earlier. This, how did, how did he put it? The, the great exchange. The tax collector was clearly here. He was relying on the righteousness 
of God, the, re- the righteousness of Christ to get him this mercy and get him this grace to for- had- get him to a place where he was forgiven of his sins. He was relying on the mercy of God. Whereas the tax collector, it says it. Verse 9, he was confident in his own righteousness. That's the difference. The tax collector, it's not bad that he was living a life that uh, on the shell of it was glorifying to God. That's really, really good. It's not bad that he was praying the prayer that he was praying. And if you think about it, even Jesus tells us to pray somewhat like the Pharisee was praying when he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The flip side prayer to that is one of Thanksgiving where we pray, thank you, Lord, for you've kept me from being an evildoer and kept me from giving into temptation and being an evildoer. It's kind of similar to what the Pharisee prayed, and there's nothing wrong with that. I want to make very clear of that. The problem is, is that the Pharisee was thinking that his righteousness, that he acknowledged was a gift from God, was what would get him justification, his own righteousness. And even though it was from God, through the power of God, that he was able to be super awesome, that righteousness did not get him into heaven. He left there unjustified. The tax collector left there justified. To wrap up this point, I think that we can see from this text alone, and there's more out there, but we can see from this text alone that Jesus does, in fact, teach and preach the same exact gospel long before Paul, the Apostle Paul, and Pastor Paul ever preached it. And if you think about it, the the verse that always gets our minds going a little bit, Matthew 7, 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me, and this is Jesus, many will say to Jesus, On that day, I assume the day that they stand before him. Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. I think that's the only way we can square up verses like that is by knowing that people, there will be people who prophesied in the name of Christ, who drove out demons in the name of Christ, who did great things in the name of Christ, they won't be in heaven. And it will not be because they did great things. 
it will be because when they get to heaven, in their minds, they've earned it by their own righteousness. Even if it's a gift from God, they will have earned it. Their justification, they will have earned their justification by their own righteousness. And we don't see that from the tax collector. We see a man who knows dang well he's got nothing here to offer. No merit, no works, nothing. Surely he did something good, right? But he doesn't mention it because he knows it's nothing. All he's got is mercy and grace. Faith. So point four, I know this is good grief. Really quick wrap up here, guys. Point four, this is a question that surely everybody's similar to us in the sense that this question kind of gets thrown around our house once or twice a year where we'll be sitting around having a small family devotion and we'll ask the kids, hey, what are you going to say? Probably won't happen, but what are you going to say if you stand... uh, before Jesus at the pearly gates. And he says, hmm, Carly, why should I let you into heaven? What are you going to say? Now, I don't know that that's exactly what's going to take place. I don't know that the Bible supports that that exact scene will take place. But it's a good question. This childish question is still good. Because the question simply is asking... What justifies you before Christ? Your righteousness, a gift from God? Is it your righteousness, your awesomeness, your holiness, your morals? Does that justify you before Jesus? Or is it just only the righteousness that Jesus gave us on the cross? The righteousness of Christ that he gave us in exchange for our crummy sins? Is it that righteousness? I know that this might might be a little uh, weird for some people because it starts to kind of touch on our free will and our ability to make decisions for ourselves, right? Starts to touch on that. I'm going to leave that up to Corky to take care of. But clearly Jesus himself felt like this was a really big deal. And that's why he spoke of it so many times and preached it so many times and taught it so many times through his parables. That you better, when, you better know that you come to me empty-handed. This is a serious point, not because I think it is, but because Jesus thinks it is. Out of all the sermons, the, uh, what do you call the pods that you listen to? Who? Podcasts. Articles. I want to call it a tripod, that's not it. Everything that I looked at all had this in common. Everybody took this doctrine 
extremely serious. Like there was no lightheartedness when it came to this message that Jesus brought in this parable. So my prayer and my hope is that this scripture, not just right now, but that it would continue as we walk away from here today, that it would probe into our hearts and into our minds. And I desperately hope that nobody leaves here today not justified. So if there's anything wonky in this message that you're going, hold on, hold on, are you, are you telling me that everything I'm doing is useless? I thought that's what got me straight with God. I don't know about that. Then I want you to find somebody that you respect as soon as we're done and bring that thought to them. Get this figured out. Don't leave here not justified like the Pharisee. That's it.